0: Welcome to Wealth Well Done. Together, we'll cover a wide range of important topics surrounding money and the impact it has on our lives. From the sophisticated and highly valuable planning techniques of the ultra wealthy to the commonly underutilized biblical teachings. Together, we'll work to improve our relationship with money and our effectiveness in stewarding it well.
1: Here's your host, Eric Scoville. I want to welcome back to the show Isaac Bennett. He is the visionary leader and founder of the (laughs) the, the UR Family of Agencies. Um, Isaac was on for episodes four and five. He was the the first interview that we did here. And so Isaac's really specializes in real estate syndications, um, as well as hard asset royalty streams. Then we have here to my left, Brad Stiegel and his partner, Mike Gudot from Acceleration Ventures, they um, that's a, a real estate uh, holding company and management company. Mike has been investing in real estate, I think we'd say since about the beginning of time.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and, wow. Wow. guys, we sorry. We can
1: start with that right away. I
2: appreciate being
1: here.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Barely made it up. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Brad, uh, Brad has, uh, and actually it's Mike as well, but successfully retired from uh, W2 jobs to make real estate their primary focus. So. We have a powerhouse team here to talk about real estate investing and then get into this project that we're working on together. So before we do that, I want to ask some questions of you guys to, uh, A, help our listeners to get to know you better, and also to, uh, I I imagine these are some things that, that these are lessons that you guys have learned that uh, would be applicable to other people who are growing in their own real estate development. So Brad. Uh, when is the right time to scale beyond so obviously we go from this you go from a you know, people often start in real estate from a single family residential go maybe go to duplex into a quadplex but when is the right time to scale beyond a quadplex
3: i i think it all comes down to when you're comfortable right you need to make sure that uh your your personal finances are in order you need to make sure that your business is running well and if in, in my mind, if there's any level of chaos in, in what you're currently doing, you need to deal with and fix that chaos before you scale it up anymore. Whether whether that's bringing in extra employees, extra subcontractors, what whatever that may mean to you, make sure that you're comfortable where you're at before you start worrying about where you're going.
1: How much extra work was it when you... For like that additional building, when, when you went beyond a, a quadplex, how much extra work was that?
3: That's what's so funny, you know... You hear on podcasts all the time that it's just as easy to do an Aplex as it is to do a house. Um, once you acquire one thing, it's just as easy to do the next. And you know, that's not 100% true. Um, there are parts that are true. You know, you still have one closing. Mm-hmm. And once you understand how to deal with all the prorations and, and what's going to happen at the closing to make sure that everything's being taken care of properly, that's the case. But you've got eight people that are going to call you instead of one. Right. And so you just need to make sure that you've got the systems in place to handle that volume. You get eight bathrooms now instead of just one bathroom. So if if two bathrooms go down at once, you're going to call to
1: fix them. Right. It's, it's, it's easy to say we have got one roof, which right. is true. You do have one roof, so you can simplify some things with contractors. But
3: Everything else multiplies. Yeah.
1: And, and you also, when you get into eight, you now have a culture inside. Inside your, your rental. Whereas before, you know, with a few people, that, that doesn't really come out as much.
3: Yeah. If you're doing a bad job, they're not going to tell the other properties that are across town. But if you're doing a bad job with uh, one tenant or two tenants inside of an eight unit, the others are going to find out real quickly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Mike, when is the right time to go into commercial property?
2: So I think, uh, you know, with any in the real estate space, there's a multiple streams or multiple opportunities, right? You've got multifamily, which Brad and I are spent a bunch of time in, you know, 30 plus years each in the multifamily space. You know, you got a lot of folks in the uh, the, RVs, the RV parks. You've got uh, uh, a lot of different avenues you can go down into the, uh, to the real estate space. But kind of like Brad said, right? You have to be prepared and have the right systems and processes in place when you move into any adjacent sort of real estate. So let's say, you know, like Brad and I are an example of this, right? So we've got almost 500 multifamily units collectively between us. And then recently, about a year and a half or so ago, uh, we moved into the commercial space with some pretty significant uh, investments in the commercial space. So one of the things that we had in place that actually allowed us to make that that leap was proper uh, property management. So we were able to inherit the existing property manager because Brad and I are not experts in triple net leases and commercial leases and dealing with you know uh, national tenants and stuff like that. So one of the things that was really critical for us, for our success moving into commercial was having somebody that was part of our virtual team, if you want to call it, uh, our property manager who had very uh, decades of experience in that space. So we were able to put our assets and our ability to get financing and find the deal to work and she was able for her expertise in terms of keeping the tenants happy managing the leases and stuff. but
3: that also doesn't mean that somebody couldn't start in commercial it's yeah. just a matter of at, at what level they're beginning
1: what what type of organization requirements not not the organization of your you know your team but like actual organizational requirements you have cuz commercial tenants have a different expectation than a than a residential
3: I think it's very easy to buy a house or a duplex or a quad and manage it yourself um, to, to do a commercial property. If you don't have training in managing commercial properties, it's going to be a lot tougher. Yeah. So I think the expectation going in, if your first property is going to be commercial, make sure that you've got a property manager that, that you know and trust. Mm-hmm. But I've known people that have just started off like their first property instead of getting a house or a duplex, it was a small commercial
2: building. And then they just scaled from there. One of the big differences between residential and commercial is in that lease, right? Your residential lease on a property management site is very—it's the same on every every resident that you're dealing with. On a commercial lease, every every lease that you do is unique. So you need to make sure that you again you either you either have the expertise in for how to negotiate those leases, how to structure those leases, you know, have counsel in place, you know, attorneys in place to help structure those as well. And then again. You want to have a a good frontline um, kind of real estate team, whether it's your property manager or real estate agents who are experts in that the commercial space as well.
1: Yeah. Oh, okay. I just want to make a point here. Um, these guys have not seen these questions. And Mike, when <laughs> I asked that first question, you jumped in like that was scripted right off the bat. You knew that. So that was impressive. <laughs> All right. Um, thank you for those answers. Isaac. Actually, you know what? Sorry. Let's go back to that one more question because I have... I have a handful of clients who, they own their own practice and they are, you know, deciding to try to buy a space that they're going to, you know, rent out a third of it themselves, Um, and then you know, obviously rent out the rest to other tenants. What advice do you have for someone there, Mike?
2: First off, I would say if you're in the financial position to put yourself as your own landlord, I think that's a very, very Productive financial position to move into, right? If you if you can make that leap in terms of owning your own building, where you become a tenant, you become maybe the anchor tenant, um, and then you have some additional folks. Um, you know, it kind of takes me back to you know when I you know my very first investment was a duplex, right? I lived in one side and rented out the other, and I had a roommate, so I lived in essence for free at 22 years old. So, it's same similar thing as a commercial property. If you're a dentist or a chiropractor or whatever, you can own a part of that. And, um, again, work with some proper resources and some proper, you know, team members or experts to help you lease those up, get contracts in place. It's an incredible way to maximize that return on your investment versus uh, pay rent to somebody
1: else. Yeah. Okay. All right. Isaac, um, what is the... <laughs> yeah. Throw some good ones at brains you. brains of the operation. Good to be back. <laughs> to be back. <laughs> All right. This one could be a layup for you but it would be difficult to someone else to answer right on the spot what's the most important rule of investing that you have encountered so far don't lose money
2: mm.
0: yeah i think that right now we're looking at a situation where in september of 2023 you've got a whole lot of people who felt like they were really smart over the past four or five years that right now are recognizing that the tide has gone out and you know there's a, a common saying out there right now sort of tongue-in-cheek that's. Survive until 25. Here's the reality. That's still predicting the future. We have absolutely no idea what 2024 or 2025 is going to be. So so don't lose money. And uh there's really only two things that you can fix in real estate. That's your entry point, your basis, your cost basis, and your financing. And a lot of people are finding out right now that they uh didn't think enough about the entry point or were too liberal with it, or they didn't appreciate fixing the financing. Um and they are losing money.
1: Yeah, we are. Actually, let me let me put that to you instead. Predicting the future here. Um, what do you anticipate the real estate market looks like a, as as the these two issues between people's basis and their financing begin to um, you know as the tide goes out, you see who's swimming naked. What do you anticipate the real estate is going to start looking like here in the next couple of years?
0: I try not to anticipate. I try to prepare, uh, and I think preparation for that looks like putting away putting away resources in times of plenty. You know, you may have seven years of plenty, putting away resources during those times for when the seven years of drought come up. And I think 2022 was the first of, I don't know if it's seven years or 70 years or 17 months, but that was the start of the drought. So the people who will succeed in this are those who have put away resources during the good times and then can be uh, strategic and advantageous during the the tough times. And a lot of that's going to look like can you do you have cash or can you access cash because it's going to be so much harder it already is so much harder to get financing
1: yeah okay uh, yesterday i was at a at an outing and listening to a, a fairly new business owner talk about how in the winter they, they had a business that that excels in the winter it's like we were just printing money and now now here they are in the summer and they're struggling to survive well what did you do with the money when you were printing it because Everyone at that point, even if they're trying to be good business owners, they might say, well, I'll just reinvest. I'm going to reinvest all this, but never thinking about the fact that they need to keep cash on hand for for drought. So, yeah, I think you're right there. Um,
2: okay, yeah, I think, you know, to, to Isaac's point, I think the most successful folks, we're going to make it through whatever the journey looks like. Having a properly aligned balance sheet, you know, that's right size to the risk that you've taken on is, is critically important. Right. There's there's there's. Nothing worse whether it's a, you know somebody has a duplex and they have to have a $10,000 roof that needs to get fixed and they got two grand in the bank or you've got $100 million in, in real estate and you've got some catastrophe that happens and you got $10 in the bank. I think having that ability to withstand any sorts of storms is one of the critical differences between those who have and those who have not kind of deal in terms of preparing for the future.
0: Yeah. If I can just add a point to that too, there's a a fascinating research piece out there that I'm sorry, I can't quote off the top of my head, but the research centered around what investors, and this is more equities focused, but what investors had performed the best over a long period of time. And I think the result of that was shocking. It wasn't sector specific. It wasn't allocation specific between stocks, bonds, real estate, or equities it was specific to position sizing. And that's Mike's point. Mike's point is, is your balance sheet and your investments are position sized appropriately for the things that you're doing. This is an incredibly nuanced topic that we could probably have a whole, a whole mm-hmm. podcast on, but just go look at um, one book that I could reference is Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke. It's all about position sizing and poker, but it's applicable as well to the investment world. And I think if you can get that down, you're probably never going to go bankrupt. And if you can survive, that's the first thing you have to do to grow wealth is you have to survive.
1: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, from a as an asset manager uh, on the investment side, people are wanting to make sure that ninety-eight or ninety-nine percent of their money is uh, that's inside a portfolio is invested, and missing out on the point, you know, to to maximize the efficiency of every dollar. But the problem is, they they don't have cash ready to to be opportunistic or to protect.
2: Day so, two strike, if you will, presents itself, right? So, you know, Brad and I we take a very conservative approach to, to underwriting deals and to, to going after opportunities. And that allows us to keep, to say, you know, keep some of the powder dry. Right. right. So when, uh, when something does occur and somebody does come to us with a, an interesting opportunity, we can respond to that in an appropriate fashion, but that also doesn't, we're not going to put ourselves in a position of over your skis, if you will, right. uh, in terms of putting those, putting those out, you know, those my to work. Okay. And I just keep thinking about discipline when I,
3: You know, all of these topics, you just have to remain disciplined. The poker book, I haven't read it, but I'm sure it's, you got to be disciplined. So like, you know, when this happens, you do this. You just have to make sure that you don't get yourself into bad situations.
1: Yeah. Applies to all sorts of investing. Um, Okay. Last one here, Brad. What would it take for you to sell a really good property?
3: A really good price. This is an interesting uh, topic that you bring up because before Mike and I uh, we're business partners. I hadn't sold anything. I was buy hold forever. And that's what I was going to do. And for me, it was part of my retirement plan. I was working a day job. I had these properties on the side and I was going to get them paid off. By the time I retired, I'd have this nice passive income. It would supplement my 401k. And, and that was it. That's that's the only way that I looked at things. And then uh, back in 2020, in the middle of COVID, Mike and I bought an apartment building. And one year later, Mike says, we need to sell. I'm like, no, this, this property is great. We've increased the value. Let's just let's just hold on to it. And it was, in, you know, in that moment, I had the decision to, to trust Mike and, and trust his instincts or stick with the the old way that I've been doing things. And I'm glad we sold it because we sold it for, I don't know, 50% profit. And then we were able to 1031 that. We turned the 24 units into 112 units. And so Mike's all about uh, being opportunistic. And I, I think if... If the price is right for the sale, don't get hung up on trying to hold things forever. All right. Because you got to look at what you can do with that.
1: Fantastic advice. Okay, let's switch. We're going to switch into a little bit about Belize now. And then uh, for those of you listening, next week, we are going to come in and do another round of uh, questioning for, for these guys. I think the the insight that you guys have is incredible, incredibly valuable to to uh, myself and to others who are looking to get in this game. Um, okay, so Belize. The, for those of you who don't know, Central America, but it, it's just south of Mexico. It's about 250, 250 miles south of Cancun, obviously on the Atlantic side of the ocean there. Um, it also has this incredible island called the Ambergris Key. Uh, but I'm just going to go ahead and spell that for anyone listening. So A-M-B-E-R-G-R-I-S and then key is C-A-Y-E. Um, so Ambergris Key is this gorgeous island off the coast. Um, if you look at an aerial view of that, you'll see... You'll see, you'll see the that uh, traditional blue water, that gorgeous water that uh, is known in the Caribbean. And so, Isaac, you've been investing for, in Belize for about how long? Uh, I've been there since 2017 uh, and made my first deal in
0: 2018.
1: Okay. All right. And so the, and these are all ground-up projects that you've done. Yeah. You gave me... Uh, definitely gave me the FOMO, the Fear of Missing Out, the first time. Uh, you started talking to me about this. Like, I got to figure out how to get in, um, get in Belize. And so... Anyways, I wanted to talk a little bit about why Belize as a tourist. What is so attractive to, to those of you uh, to, who have not been to Belize, help, or to those of us who haven't, help us understand.
0: As a tourist,
1: as a tourist first.
0: That's interesting because I've never gone there as a tourist. Um, <laughs> <laughs> why, why, do, why do tourists want to go? <laughs> so something deeply sad about me, but um, as a tourist, you're talking about uh, a tropical climate. Think Cancun. It's basically Cancun climate there is the second largest World's Great Barrier Reef there that actually is parallel, it's adjacent to Amherst Key. um, And it's an unbelievably beautiful reef. So think snorkeling, diving, fly fishing, uh, surfing, all of these things that you can do. uh, It's very typical as far as a tourist destination. But some things that might not be as obvious as the sun and the sand and the play, right, are... Uh, it's English-speaking, which for somebody who may only speak English, that's a huge benefit because you go there, you're never confused about what it is. Uh, the Belizean dollar is pegged 2 to 1 to the U.S. dollar, and everywhere it takes U.S. dollars. So it's very convenient to be able to go in and out. Ambergris is key specifically. is very safe. So you can walk around it. Now you can do pretty much anything, anywhere, and be safe. And as we found out in many places in Mexico right now, that's just not the case. Right. Um, the last thing I would say from a tourist perspective is it's still on the ascendancy. And so if you're looking for something that is a little more off grid and it's not like roughing it, I mean, there's some really nice places you can stay, but if you're looking for something that is not as touristy, it's not just t-shirt and flip-flop shops all over the place. This is the place to go. It's very different from Cabo or somewhere like that, uh, where it's just not, it's not really flush with tourists yet. Okay.
1: Okay. And anyone listening can understand how Isaac's mind, even when he thinks about tourism, there's definitely an investment uh side of that. Um, which we'll, we'll spill right into that too. So I Isaac, will, next time
2: you need to go fishing or something. Yeah. Yeah. Go, I just, I, I
1: don't know. go check out I don't know about all that stuff. The blue hole. If you want to look it up online, like search the blue hole and you just <laughs> oh,
2: yeah, there some famous There's
1: some incredible like water sports this is the water sports. Got game your Isaac yeah, Isaac <laughs> Scuba diving is one of the best places it's, in the world to go scuba diving as well. So all right. Why believe as an investment? Be, so you got this one.
0: Yeah. So when, when I look at real estate, I think of real estate as being a liability. Okay. And that is probably very contrary to many of the things that you've heard. But all real estate is a liability. It's all a liability. The, the value in real estate is what real estate can do and um, to create an asset the asset is the lease that you put inside real estate the future series of cash flows that real estate can create via a lease is the value and if you doubt me on this go buy a commercial building with a tenant that has six months left on their lease and let it expire and then see what happens over the next six months so you try to bring in a new tenant you very quickly have a liability all real estate's liability so then when you're looking for real estate to buy what are you looking for there's no such thing as an appreciating market or a depreciating market. There's only markets that have higher or lower future streams of cash flow based on many different things. Population, growth, areas, improvements, gentrification, taxes, tax planning, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Crime, jurisdiction, many things that we're not allowed to talk about from fair housing laws, all of these things that play into the idea of whether a property can create more or less future cash flow, right? Mm -hmm. When I look at Belize, very long-winded answer to get to the point of saying, why Belize? When I look at Belize, I see a structural design, and it has literally been designed this way by the Belizean government to their credit. They became a country in 1981. They have designed this to say, we want to attract guys like Brad and Mike. We want to attract them. So what have they done? They have said, okay, we're going to make it easy to develop with very few permits or very few uh, requirements on zoning and things of that nature. There are permitting and zoning, but they're thoughtfully and structurally done to be uh, advantageous for the investor. They said, we want to make this a very attractive destination for tourists, very low crime. Let's take our best areas and make sure they're well policed and thought through that there's very low crime. They said we want to have very low taxes. So the real estate taxes in Belize barely exist. It's about $100 per room, per bedroom, per year. Okay. So you have a nice three-bedroom house. You're going to pay about $300 a year in taxes. A three-bedroom house in Peoria, where we live, I mean, <laughs> I have a house, a day. it's $6,000 a year. So it's 20 times as expensive. Yeah. Right. It's not even comparable. They have very little rental income tax, which says it's 1.5% rental income tax per year. It's, it's almost nothing, right? So you have all of these factors The Belize dollars, I've already said, is pegged two to one to the US dollar. Now, if we're really in a fourth turning, if things are really about to get very unstable in the United States, you may have your own opinion on that. I have my own opinion. Then... Belize can actually unpeg their dollar to, to the US dollar. So if they if we have hyperinflation or we our debt load becomes so great that we can't service our debts without printing, which is true. it's where we're at today sure. then they can unpeg their dollar. so they' prepared for the future in that way. And then the final thing that I would say is it's an insanely beautiful location that people who like to go on vacations, I guess those people exist, they love to go <laughs> nice. they love to go there and they love to go there because it's simple. There's wonderful food, wonderful people, they speak English, and the price point to approach it is still very approachable. Um, They also have wonderfully uh, advantageous laws for people who want to gain citizenship or gain permanent residence there. We might go into that at another time. I think (laughs) I've probably given you enough so far, but these are many of the reasons why I think Belize
1: is an extremely attractive to be for the long term.
2: I'm glad you didn't ask me that question because I could not
1: have given you that answer. No, Isaac is the man for that. Um, all right. So we're going to we're going to go ahead and uh, with the time we have left, on, on the next episode, we're going to come back and talk more about Mahogany Bay and just the overall uh, reasons why we are doing what we're doing there. But let's talk a little bit about the investment that we have so far. So um, I want to maybe, Brad, ask you to describe a little bit about what we're doing and, and what someone should know is we'll spend maybe five more minutes talking about this and then we'll, we'll go into a lot more detail in the next episode.
3: Yeah. So what, what we've done is we've secured three lots within the Mahogany Bay, de- uh, Mahogany Bay de- development. And uh, we're going to develop uh, two five-bedroom houses and then a three-bedroom house that can be keyed off. And uh, essentially what we're doing is building beautiful properties inside of a, a community that is just mind-blowing how, how awesome it is. And we're going to do short-term rentals down there. And there's, there's a lot of demand for short-term rentals. Yep. And in addition to that, we chose to do two of the five bedroom houses because there aren't a lot of options down there for the bigger houses. So the people that take big groups down are, are big families. So that's what we're looking to do.
1: Yeah. And then these are, these are man-made peninsulas. Think a little bit of like the Palm islands in Dubai. These are man-made peninsulas. They're off the, you know, off the coast of Belize and on this incredible Island. Um, Isaac, when you talk about the, the investment themselves, like what does, what does someone who's interested in this need to understand about what we're we're doing?
0: I think the first thing to understand is that this is, it may seem to be very risky and it's actually interesting because i just exited, i just sold the first development that we did in Mahogany Bay. It's just about 500 yards from where we're developing these. And there's, there's a lot of nuance to Belize to know before you go in. So I'm very glad that this is essentially our fit development down there. Um, but I would not view it in the short term as a cash flow market. I would view it as a market that is generating a lot of interest over the long term and has a lot of future catalysts to create amazing cash flow. But for the time being, it's more about establishing a foothold as irreplaceable property. This is property that you, 10 years from now, you're gonna look back and say, how in the world did we get that for this cost basis? Because it's still pretty approachable. And we're building amazing, gorgeous homes, very affordably. And it's on the water, it's a five minute boat ride from the open blue seas. It has a, It's going to have a private beach club, it has a private pool club, it's irreplaceable. And I think that is the first thing to really think about. The other thing to think about is, we're not doing this with any debt, right? So the cash flows that will be generated are almost entirely accretive to someone's cash flow. And so from a risk standpoint, I think we've taken out uh, 90% of the risk of what would normally be in a development like this where people are using a lot of leverage. We're using none just for that reason to lower the risk.
1: Okay. And so what's the raise?
0: Uh, about 4.5 million total.
1: Okay. And... Is that what you meant? That yeah. Like, yep, okay, no, yeah. that's exactly it. So. So, from from this standpoint, where we're at, by the time these uh, these episodes are um, are released, we will have been a few weeks into the the race here. So, this is going to be raising four point five million. It's going to be on a first come first serve basis. There, there are extra benefits for someone who is choosing to invest at a higher level. Minimum investment is one hundred thousand dollars. At three hundred thousand dollars, there are some additional perks to the investment. Um, but outside of that, we are looking for um, the money to come in to help us get started with construction. The architectural plans are done, uh, utilities are, are there on the street. We are ready to um, we are ready to start the construction here. Contractors are are ready to go. So from that standpoint, we are going to um, begin this raise. It's already we've already released that to uh, a select group of investors, and then that's going to continue to get released out to everyone here. Um, so if you're interested in understand more about this we're going to do a lot more information on this on the next episode but uh you might just want to go ahead and, and reach out to one of us sooner than that so you can get a hold of us uh you, you know me you can get a hold of uh, our, us on our website storehouseassets.com um, ur is the uh, peoplebrand.com mike and brad at acceleration ventures accelerationventures.com right okay so you can get a hold of any of us here and we'd be happy to get you more information but thanks for listening and we'll be back next week Thank you again for listening to Wealth Well Done.
0: Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast player, and together we'll continue to improve our relationship with money and our effectiveness in stewarding it well.